1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, concerned about foreign influence in Canada's upcoming election, but who's behind it? What do they want to achieve and how do we stop it? A look at how natural gas can help reduce global emissions and why some environmental groups have it very wrong on this question. Also, as Calgary gets set to introduce an e-scooter sharing program, other cities are having second thoughts. What are the red flags to watch for? Plus, the latest on Boeing's legal lows stemming from the MAX 8 fiasco. We're still several months away from the fall federal election, but already there is concern from Canada's intelligence community that there have been attempts by foreign actors to directly influence the upcoming federal election campaign. There's a piece today from Toronto Star and BuzzFeed News uh, looking at the extent of this, or at least the extent to which Canada's intelligence community is sounding the alarm about this. Does the Communications security establishment, CSE, the country's cyber defense agency, has briefed senior political staff of one federal party about covert and overt attempts to influence the October 21st federal election? So, In terms of who might be responsible, in terms of what they might be up to, there are some big questions here. Joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for
3: having me on.
2: Well, and I guess, you know, two of the big questions that leap out from this investigation is, well, Who's behind this and and what specifically are they doing? Do do we have any idea yet?
3: Well, officially, no. Um, you know, I think there's uh, been a lot of, of, you know, reasonable conclusions that there's a certain number of actors in this space. Um, we have seen actual government documents which say, you know, Russia has been responsible for um, hacking and, and foreign influence operations. But they don't, um, you know, in this particular case, they haven't said who. And there, there is actually a, a range of actors. I mean, we can easily point to probably Russia being behind some of these activities. Certainly, they've been active in the United States, and we've seen that time and time again. But they've also been active in other Western democracies as well. Um, I think there's increasing worry about China. China has a tra- more or less a traditional interest in hacking into political parties. And mostly because I think they're just curious as to what the different political parties think about certain issues. So it's kind of more or less a traditional exercise. But I think there's also increasing concern about, you know, the level of Chinese state control over Chinese language media here in Canada, over some of the apps that are used, uh, such as WeChat, um, uh, which, again, you know, can be censored very easily by Beijing. So is there a concern there? Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also have this other range of actors who are not as active, but are increasingly kind of wandering into this space. Um, Saudi Arabia last summer engaged in a large social media campaign when we had the disputes. Uh, Between Canada and Saudi Arabia, Uh, there's a lot of bots online basically accusing Canada of being a terribly corrupt country where, you know, there's violence and all these kinds of things. Um, We've seen um, attributions publicly to countries like Iran and Venezuela, who have been accused of kind of starting up fake Facebook groups uh, that have been engaging in some bot related tweet activity against uh, certain Canadian interests. And then finally, there's been some accusations with regards to countries like India, who we know are unhappy with the Trudeau government. So are, would they be uh, involved in this, um, these kinds of activities? It's unclear yet to the extent, but those to me would be the most likely actors in this space.
2: Well, and you know, I mean, the thing is, we've talked about this before. You've spoken a lot about this before. I mean, we, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this, should we?
3: And in fact, um, the communication security establishment told us earlier this year that they assessed with 80 percent and above confidence. So in in the intelligence game, that's pretty much a bullseye um, that they expected to see clandestine foreign influence campaigns in the federal election. And here we are that we we find out that, you know, our national security services are probably detecting and advising on these various threats Um, and they're working with political parties to make sure that they don't end up like the Democratic National Committee where they were hacked and they had their papers kind of strewn about over the internet.
2: Well is that a vulnerability? I mean it's one thing to protect government institutions but parties, political parties are separate from that. Are, Are the parties a little more vulnerable here do you think?
3: You know I'm so glad you raised that because it's a little crazy that we now have you know We traditionally arrange our democracies in such a way that spies and political parties aren't supposed to mix. But the way the threat has actually turned and the nature of political parties these days as these kind of giant vacuum cleaners of information that they can kind of base their operations on. I think it means that we actually do need to have these two not necessarily working together, but at least advising uh, one another. Um, the national security establishment, basically, if they detect threats and, and the kind of measures that political parties need to take, and the political parties, if they detect some kind of unusual activities in their computer systems. And, you know, to answer your question about the vulnerability of political parties, yes, they are extremely vulnerable. Uh, they are, I would actually argue they are probably the soft underbelly in our system. I think Elections Canada is probably very well protected. I think the government of Canada is probably very well protected. But political parties, they don't want to invest their hard-earned fundraise dollars on cybersecurity issues. They want to put advertisements on sports programs and HGTV, all the home renovation shows that I watch. Um, that's what they want to spend their money on, not on cybersecurity. And so they, the problem is that they're not using secure services. They're not... Uh, you know, they're not hiring the kind of professionals that they need. And so, yeah, so I think that probably the one of the biggest risks that these parties have is, uh, I'm sure that our democracy has, is actually our political parties and whether or not they're prepared to protect their own systems, uh, which in a lot of ways goes to the safety and security of our own elections.
2: I mean, at some level, they obviously have a vested interest, right? They they don't want their stuff getting hacked. They don't want their secrets leaking out. And and that could be embarrassing at one level. On the other hand, um, you know, if if a hypothetical situation where a a foreign actor is interested in helping that political party, maybe it's they're they're less inclined to be worried about it. But what, what is the nature of the threat here?
3: So I think it's a number of things that the foreign actor would look for in a political party. So the first would be, as we said, you know, that traditional espionage component. Like, you know, maybe there's countries like Saudi Arabia or Iran or, uh, in particular, I identify China. as just wanting to know what the political parties believe so that when a new leader comes in place, they know how to construct their foreign policy around us. You know, just a general espionage thing. But I worry about other things. So if you're planning, say, a more sophisticated uh, for an influence campaign, what you might want to do is uh, basically grab a bunch of emails and selectively leak them or drop them uh, in such a way as to make a political party look bad or a political candidate look bad and we 've seen that in france we 've seen that in other Western countries, and we certainly we saw that with regards to Hillary Clinton. Another thing they might be doing, and this is a little bit more scary to me would be just trying to learn how the various people in the political party communicate, learning their kind of syntax learning like what, what do their documents look like for the purpose of generating convincing forgeries? So, in other words, that, you know, you would put out forgeries and say, oh, look, we have this document that yeah. looks like this. And right. And so you're trying to do a forgery. And the third thing that I think that they would look for is these political parties have a lot of information about their supporters and people they are targeting. So you might actually be trying to get the information on who they're targeting, what they're targeting and um, getting their information in order to construct a more uh, viable um, social media campaign that could be used to, to target those voters.
2: And the other thing is, and it kind of cuts to the heart of the matter here in terms of the conversation we're having or the reporting that the Toronto Star and BuzzFeed News are doing, uh, that, that Canadians need to know about all of this. But at the same time, I mean, if, if there's an attempt to foster chaos, people read these stories, they panic, they start to lose faith in the system, it can it can snowball from there, can't it? Yeah,
3: absolutely it can. And that's something that I think, you know, uh, that's, that's, there's a strategic goal here, and that is really to get you know, Canadians to lose faith in the democratic process, right? They want, and, and they serve a number of goals that way. In the first instance, if you're China and Russia, and think about it right now, China's dealing with a massive uprising in Hong Kong. Um, you want, you want to point, you want to, you want to show your own citizens. You want to be able to point to the West and say, you want this democratic system. Well, look at all the chaos that it's brought. You think it's going to solve your problems. It's just going to make them worse. So why are you trying to do democracy? Because look at, look at the chaotic situation. So that's one thing that they can serve, is they can discredit the idea of democracy to their own people. And then the second thing is, a lot of ways that these social media uh, interference campaigns have worked, the way we've seen them uh, throughout Europe and the United States, is they're very good at figuring out what the hot-button issues in every country uh, basically is. And um, if, they, if they're able to do that, then they can you know kind of get us to be really angry at ourselves and pay less attention to what's going on inside our borders. So if we're busy fighting about, you know, climate change, oil pipelines, uh, immigration, uh, all those kinds of things about trusting government, then, you know, we're not going to be paying attention to, to what's going on inside. And again, they can kind of point to, oh, look, at Canada is in a big mess. Why would you ever want to be like Canada? So I think that's the, the two strategic goals at autocratic states generally have when they're targeting the West. It's not, you know, they're not. there is no Canadian Donald Trump. There's no one who's going to um, basically be a pro-Russia politician. There's kind of a consensus around that in Canada. Yeah. But what they can do is they can, A, try and make us and, and their own people lose faith in the idea of democracy, and B, make us so riled up and angry that it kind of paralyzes us. And you could even add to that the fact that if people don't believe in the legitimacy of the election, if they believe the system is rigged, and that also, you know, kind of creates a chaotic situation, which really kind of benefits these states as well.
2: So beyond the parties maybe doing a little bit more to protect themselves, protect their own interests and information, does it, it, it seem as though, by and large, that we are aware of this problem and that we're we're doing pretty much as much as we can to combat it?
3: It is. I mean, look, at the end of the day... Um, a lot of these hacking campaigns aren't particularly sophisticated. It just takes one election worker to click on an attachment and then they can get access to the system. So, you know, a lot of the things that you have to try and do is try to get these systems to do layered security, um, you know, making sure that not everyone has access to every single email that's sent in the party. Um, to basically use, you know, basic things like two-factor authentication. Are people using secure devices? Are the web forms that are being filled out, are those secure? These are pretty rudimentary, you know, cyber hygiene 101 steps that, that can be taken. But, you know, again, political parties haven't always taken steps to kind of really use the kind of cyber uh, security tools that are there. So trying to coach them to do that, I think, is a good thing. I actually think there there should be far stronger rules about how political parties use the data they collect on Canadians anyways. So, you know, I I don't, under you know, I think that they should just, have that. And I think that they should probably extend these practices to the rest of their business and their business models um, to help uh, basically protect our democracy. These, there's a number of just really common sense steps, but, you know, it's, it's so easy in some ways that it's actually hard <laughs> because, you know, again, it just requires that one person to kind of click on the wrong link to download the wrong file. And um, you could have a bit of a nightmare on your hands. But, you know, all you can really do is just invest in and in, in kind of hope the good news is as well that I would say is we've recently passed legislation in this country, Bill C-59, which uh, gives the communication security establishment, who are kind of our, our cyber spies, um, they now have the ability to engage in um, um, activities that can help uh, identify these attacks and stop them and disrupt them before they actually occur. So that's a very good thing.
2: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Stephanie, I always appreciate the insight. And I thanks for making some time for us here today.
3: Hey, thanks for
2: having me on. There you go. That is uh, Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Uh, as she writes on Twitter, the answer here is to not panic, but to acknowledge that this is a thing and encourage political parties to have better cyber practices. Does autocratic states want us to lose faith in our democracy, we're going to hear narratives about how the system is rigged. Don't buy it. There are sensible policy responses here, including eventually naming and shaming. And I think the good news is, as she points out, that this isn't going to be a case of some foreign actor trying to influence the election one way or the other. When it comes to China, when it comes to Russia, there aren't really any meaningful differences between the liberals and conservatives. Certainly, I think you can fault the liberals for how they've dealt with these kinds of countries. You can certainly criticize the liberals for how they've handled this whole China mess. But it's not as though in terms of policy on China that there are significant differences between the conservatives and the liberals. Well, Canada is poised, and and hopefully we can see this through, but Canada is poised to be a global leader when it comes to natural gas or LNG in particular. Uh, there's this massive project that's uh, been given the green light in B.C., LNG Canada, uh, which would allow this country to export large amounts of LNG abroad, in particular to Asia. So The idea then that uh, electricity that's generated by coal in places like China could be replaced by much cleaner natural gas, whatever we will net benefit when it comes to emissions. So there is an environmental case, a climate case for LNG development. But you're hearing the opposite this week. Uh, There was a report out this week suggesting that natural gas is actually part of the problem. Global Energy Monitor. The report saying that natural gas is the new coal. There was an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail this week from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives with the headline, LNG's Big Lie, making much the same point. The natural gas is just another fossil fuel and is part of the problem. So there are certainly those on the environmental side of things uh, that are arguing that natural gas is not and cannot be a part of the solution, that it has to be renewables. So is that reasonable and is it accurate? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, what the facts tell us around LNG. Very pleased to welcome to the program Blair King, environmental scientist based in B.C. with an interest in energy policy. A chemist in Langley.net is his website. Blair, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Well, we've talked about this before. You've written a lot about LNG and why, from an environmentalist perspective, you support LNG. So what do you make of all of these claims that we're now hearing this week? Well, there's a lot of
1: misinformation and simply bad information out there uh this new study by the global energy monitor which a lot of people may remember used to be called coal swarm uh, is simply another case of information that has been collected for a purpose to present a narrative being used to present that narrative, and the some of the information is questionable. Some of it is down is outright wrong, and it's really hard when you keep reading the reading information like in the the Globe piece that had errors. Uh, that there is just that it's hard to deal with at uh, for fact checking purposes.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's start with some some bigger issue thing because clearly, I mean, uh, natural gas is cleaner than coal, right? I mean, are are, are they questioning that?
1: Well absolutely they're questioning uh, the the Global Energy Monitor report uh, be, stands out and says that natural gas is worse than coal it does so by using some old data from a specific part of the United States to extrapolate worldwide and as a consequence they they are able to say that uh, that using the using the data that is not applicable to the Canadian envir- uh Canadian situation they say well there's so much fugitive emissions that the material that coal is that it's worse than coal though so their numbers are are incorrect on on a number of perspectives they've got uh, the calculations they use for Chinese coal uh, is are wrong. The numbers they use for fugitive emissions in British Columbia are wrong. So it's really hard to deal with a, an argument when essentially all the numbers they're using are not applicable to our to the case of BC.
2: Yeah, let's talk about fugitive emissions, and that that refers, I guess, to to the methane that's released from from natural gas lines, right?
1: Well, it's the methane that's re- released through the entire process, okay. from the drilling to the extraction to the transportation. Every step of the way has there's some leakage, and in British Columbia, we calculate the Oil and Gas Commission calculates that about 0.3 to 0.4 percent of all the gas that is actually pulled out is lost to leakage. Uh, the global the global monitor people say that the number is closer to 2.3 percent anything over about 2.6% to and you start running into issues globally as to whether or not uh, natural gas is uh, is effective at reducing global emissions so their attempt is to try and increase that number as much as possible so that they can say that coal is, that natural gas is not as clean as coal is not uh, cleaner than coal
2: Mm-hmm. But obviously if we 're going to to measure the impact of replacing coal with natural gas, we would factor in these so called fugitive emissions
1: absolutely, and all the life cycle analyses done to support these projects do do that. They take into account these emissions the u s NASA recently did a study that said in the United States that their estimated Loss is about 1.3 uh, percent. They have a lot of shallow facilities and other places that have issues, and places like Boston, where the the pipes are in incredibly old, and a, a good percentage of the natural gas that gets pumped into the natural gas system is ends up in the uh, in the subsurface. So there are a lot of there's a lot of places where they can improve, but. But the, the recent research shows that the numbers that are being proposed by these uh, commentators are nowhere near the numbers that are being presented uh, when you actually take the scientists and put the, uh, put the research hats on. <laughs>
2: In terms of how much natural gas Canada is developing right now, and this report talks about facilities in pre-construction, there's a pretty big number. I think they talk about, and in, in you referenced it here, 281 megatons per annum. I mean, are we really developing that much natural gas right now?
1: No, uh, that's another thing. They, their their website says that we have about 290 mega, uh, megatons of pre-production in Canada right now. Uh, the reality is that about 36 megatons has been approved. And if you go to the National uh, National Resources Canada website, which tracks all the programs, there's about 216 uh, that have. In production, in uh, pre-planning, of which a number of them are either sta- are either dead or are dead, uh, dead men walking. They require pipelines that will not be created, or they a number of them have mutual, are mutually exclusive. If one is produced, the other one will not. So ultimately, the numbers they're using, the 290 megaton per annum, simply is not going to happen. We may end up on the West Coast with somewhere around 40 to 42, but certainly not 200, the, the 290 that they suggest is coming this way.
2: Now, I suppose, look, I mean, natural gas is still a fossil fuel. There are still emissions associated with it. Uh, and, and I guess maybe there are perfectionists who, who will accept nothing less than complete and total you know, solar and wind. Uh, if we could replace China's coal emissions with solar and wind, sure, that would be great. But players, is that realistic at all?
1: It's absolutely not realistic, and this is something the this whole desiring the perfect, perfect being the, the enemy of the good. Right now, China is in the process of trying to get off coal, and they're doing it by going to natural gas. Renewables need support in the form of some other dispatchable energy, be it batteries be it nuclear be it natural gas and right now in China they're going with they're moving away from coal and into nuclear and, and natural gas because batteries just can 't do the job and so if our if the demand is that the, the Chinese go without that 's simply not going to happen so the choice is Fix the problem that we see in the world today or imagine some imaginary world where the problem doesn't exist. And right now, the activists imagine a world where China says we're going to let our people freeze in the winter because we, because we, we don't want to emit carbon. And, and unfortunately, that's not how the Chinese think. No. They, much like the Canadian government, they, they don't want their people to freeze in the dark.
2: You know, it's, it, it, it all comes at an interesting point here because unlike with, you know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, there's a real political consensus around LNG. It's an issue in which uh, John Horgan and Jason Kenney agree, for example. Uh, the federal government supports this. Their controversial C-48 doesn't apply to LNG exports. So Canada really is poised, I, I think, to, to move forward on this. But it's interesting now. We're really starting to see this
1: opposition start to build. And and the opposition is starting to build because there is a real need to address our carbon uh, emissions globally. Mm. But... There, but it has to be done in a pragmatic manner that recognizes that the rest of the world still needs energy and that we have to supply it in the best and safest and lowest carbon means possible. And the, 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 well, the well-meaning folks out here who don't want any carbon simply can't, uh, don't want to acknowledge that the rest of the world is not, at the, is not where they are in their heads.
2: All right, much more at a chemist net. Blair, always appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us here.:
1: Thanks for having me. All right,
2: that's Blair King, environmental scientist, a chemist in Langley.net, and he's written extensively about LNG. And why, from an environmentalist perspective, he supports it. And so he lays out so, some of the flaws in these arguments you're hearing this week, the idea that somehow Canadian uh, natural gas is the new coal or that it's as bad as coal or worse than coal, as he says, makes no sense at all. Uh, Science, and for that matter, math, tells us that there would be a significant emissions gain in terms of a reduction if Canadian natural gas, LNG, were able to replace that coal that's burned in countries like China. And so that would certainly, I think, should count uh, for Canada. That if we're making a difference in reducing emissions in other countries, that we should get some credit for that. Uh, So is it because countries, or not countries, Environmental groups don't want us getting credit for that? Or are they just so naive that they think that we can just go wholesale, not just us, but countries like China, can we just go wholesale to solar and wind? That we don't need natural gas? Natural gas has got to be a part of any solution. And it's completely and totally unrealistic to think otherwise. If your standard is perfection... If your standard is we are not going to budge an inch until we are complete and total zero emissions, complete and total 100% alternatives, then you're not going to accomplish anything. So if environmentalists want to set the bar there, you're not going to achieve a damn thing. You've got to be realistic. You've got to be pragmatic if you want to make progress on this issue. So if progress is now the enemy, then we may as well just throw in the towel on this. All right, e-scooters. In fact, the news release uh, from the city just a moments ago, Calgarians can expect to see shared electric scooters on the streets as early as this week thanks to the launch of the shared electric scooter pilot. So this will be a 16-month pilot project. There needed to be an exemption to the Alberta Traffic Safety Act uh, for these to go ahead. Uh, so the folks at the city are, are very excited about this. Uh, this concept of uh, shared e-scooters. Uh, these uh, dockless scooters. So it's kind of similar, I guess, to how the uh, car to go works. You know, if the, you show up, there's, there's some there. You, you rent one, you drive it to where you need to go, and you leave it there. So Calgary's uh, about to roll this out. Apparently, Edmonton as well is, uh, is doing the same. But as, as all of this is going on, as we're prepared to launch this here, some U.S. cities who have had this are having second thoughts. Uh, In fact, in Nashville, Tennessee, they are now looking at banning these scooters because of some of the problems they've encountered. So what kind of red flags should there be around all of this? Well, joining us to talk more about the experience uh, in the wonderful city of Nashville, Tennessee, joined on the uh, line by Jeremy Elrod. He's a uh, council member of District 26 in Nashville. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
2: Well, we appreciate this. So, tell us a bit more about the experience in, in Nashville. When did these e-scooters uh, first arrive in your city?
0: Last May, uh, the company Bird, um, uh, Bird Scooter, brought their scooters to Nashville in a kind of uh, ask for forgiveness instead of ask for permission kind of way. And while you know, we are trying to uh, increase our uh, ability to be open to you know new companies and, and investment and that kind of thing. Um, they were basically just thrown on our streets, mostly thrown on our sidewalks um, without any kind of regulation. Uh, folks were using them improperly, unsafely, and we really didn't have any kind of enforcement mechanism to um, you know try to fit them into our overall transportation system. So the mayor threatened to round them up and actually started to um, if BIRD didn't pull their scooters off of the streets. Uh, they did, and then over the summer last year, we worked on some regulations, and uh, at the time you know we looked at uh, it was looking like maybe about two or three companies at the most were going to be coming back to Nashville after we got our regulations passed uh, and we thought we had a pretty stringent uh pilot project in place and we passed that in august and um since then you know, we had a uh, some, some tweaks to it um in february but since then we've had seven companies come to nashville um in total between all of them um there are 4000 uh uh, they can between the, the seven companies, they can have 4,000 uh, scooters on the streets. And it looks like it. All every single one of those 4,000 are on the street. And what we've kind of uh, experienced here in Nashville is, um, you know, something that's very popular but also um, isn't being run very well right now. And that's what we're yeah. trying to get a uh, handle on.
2: So in terms then of where these scooters are being left, I mean, it sounds like they're, they're just being left all over the place.
0: Um, They are, you know, at times. It's you know, it's a couple of things. One is just the sheer volume of them. You know, we're a decent-sized city, but I think any size city, if you, no matter what size it is, if you had 4,000 scooters dropped on you, it, it would be a lot. But, you know, they set them up um, in the mornings. You know, the companies have uh, apps where they, they tell workers where to set them up. But, um, you know, they made it look nice and clean and in a row in the morning, but they are used throughout the day. So, you know, people... You know, some conscientious folks may put them in the corrals that we started putting in uh, around downtown of, you know, specific, you know, special parking areas just for scooters. Um, but a lot of them are just being strewn along um, the sidewalk. Uh, a lot of them are knocked over. They're blocking sidewalks. We have concerns about um, blocking sidewalks for um, folks in wheelchairs um, or, you know, that have, uh, you know, are blind or have difficulty seeing or just getting around. Um, blocking our sidewalks, um, and all you know those kinds of things, and then just generally riding them on our sidewalks, which our state law and city law says that they should be ridden in the streets. So we have a ton of them in, in our city, and they're all over the sidewalk blocking it, and um, we're trying to see if we can keep them here and try to uh, help them relieve our traffic congestion.
2: Yeah, so my understanding then what Nashville's looking at right now, it would be more of a pause to try to sort out some of these issues.
0: Yes, sir. And that's what we considered last night. We um, had a couple of proposals that we uh, considered on um, the second of three readings, and the one that got the most support um, basically would uh, – we have a pilot project going on right now. We're basically in um, that pilot project, put some additional emergency rules in place until we go to a an RFP or request – for proposal um, kind of, uh, you know, way to regulate them where we're able to partner more with the companies as far as, you know, having, you know, having more requirements on them, having them pay more and fees to the city so that they can pay their, you know, in return for enforcement because something we've uh, don't have right now is really any enforcement we've got uh, we're growing a lot as a city we've have a lot of tourism here which um I mean, you know a lot of folks I think enjoy but um it's taxing on our police department already and then we uh, added scooters to their uh to their responsibilities um so that's what we're trying to figure out is if we're able to you know have a revamp of our regulations of them um and if not, then we may need to, you know, just ban them altogether, which some cities have done. And we did have a proposal, uh, I guess, last night that would have taken them off the streets for 60 days uh, or immediately and then started that RFP process uh, within 60 days. Um, and there was even a, actually a third proposal that would completely ban them. And um, that event's forward, but we're, gonna, we're holding that um, until uh, the end of August um, to try to see, you know, how the, some of these emergency rules change and how the RFP process goes along. Um, because there were, people are, are some people are using them instead of taking a car, which so less cars on the street, which we think is a good thing. But we're not sure. We're trying to balance that against the um, you know all the other safety issues and blocking the sidewalks um, and that kind of thing. Whether or not you know that cost benefit is worth it.
2: Do you think there needs to be a cap? I mean, yeah, you, you, know, you talk about just the sheer numbers. Uh, is, is that something you think needs to be looked at? That you just you limit it to a certain number of these.
0: I think uh, I think for any city that would be looking to get into them um, certainly needs to um, you know really need to figure out what do they want these scooters to to be used for or you know what kind of policy idea or policy um, you, that you're wanting uh, what's the drive for for uh, having them in your city mm-hmm. um, and, but I think no matter what if you do I think it's better to start out with fewer than more and um, just so that the city can adapt to them you know people riding them and, and because they're brand new people are going to want to try them and. And, you know, ride them, you know, recklessly um, at times. Um, but also I think um, it's something we experienced here in Nashville. is our um, city government um, wasn't as able to be actively involved in managing the program as far as, you know, trying to work with businesses or our bus service um, or our public works department and trying to, you know, try to keep them on the sidewalks, try to have, you know, areas for, you know, special parking for scooters or areas where, You know, they electronically, you know, through their cellular connection, turn them off so they don't go into certain, you know, uh, densely uh, pedestrian areas Um, because that's I think really what we one of the key things we were missing here was enforcement and more of a partnership with the city. So I think it's better to what we've learned is it's better to gradually grow that. And so I think you do have to limit the numbers. Um, You know, we want to be open to companies coming to our city and giving us innovative solutions for our traffic, but. Um, we need to balance it um, with uh, you know, the folks that live here and trying to work it into our overall transportation system and not just throwing them on the streets with, and having some, a lot of the repercussions we're uh, trying to deal with
2: now. Yeah, great point. Well, appreciate you making some time for us here and giving us uh, an explanation of what Nashville's experience has been. Councilor Elrod, uh, appreciate this. Thanks again. Great. Thank you all, and good luck to you all. All right, take care. That is Jeremy Elrod, uh, council member of the city of Nashville. And, uh... Kind of an overview of uh, what their experience has been. As he said, these companies uh, came in pretty aggressively in that sense of asking for forgiveness rather than permission, as he describes it. We're just going to show up here and we'll see how the city responds. You got a lot of it all at once. And so now Nashville's struggling with just how, how do we manage all of this? How do we regulate all of this? Uh, adding to the debate, of course, there was uh, a fatality back in May, a 26-year-old who had more than twice the legal limit of alcohol in his system, was riding one of these scooters and uh, died after he was struck by an SUV. Now, it certainly sounds as though he was the one to blame, but just adding that that element of tragedy kind of shapes the debate too. I got a text from someone who says, Rob, these scooters are awesome. Rode them down in Denver with a bunch of buddies at a stag. Great way to get around. They do 18 miles an hour. If people are misusing them, give them tickets. You also had to take a picture uh, when you left them. So that's the other thing. I mean, if people are taking them out of these dockless systems, where they're just dropping them wherever. Do you need to have other docking stations where people can drop them on? So this is what the city's news release says. It says similar to the popular bike share pilot that launched last fall, which has seen more than 100,000 trips today, Calgary's pilot will operate on a dockless system. Meaning scooters will not be required to return to a kiosk or a docking system. So what does that mean? Where are they going to get left? So that could be an issue potentially. Also points out that you have to be 18 and older to ride these. Helmets are encouraged but not required. And the maximum riding speed is 20 kilometers per hour. Riders are reminded that it is illegal to operate shared electric scooters under the influence of drugs or alcohol. They have more details on the city's website, Calgary.ca slash ScooterShare. Now nine months after the Lion Air Boeing 737 MAX 8 went down and four months after the Ethiopian Airlines MAX 8 crashed, killing in total 346 people, Boeing is announcing it's offering up $100 million in funds to support families and communities impacted by the two crashes. The money will go towards supporting education and living expenses for families, but Boeing will likely end up paying out much more between lawsuits and payments to airlines whose planes are still grounded. Alex Stone, ABC News. So it is a large pay at $100 million, but I think it's just the beginning for Boeing. As you heard in that piece, there is going to be for the lawsuits from the families of the victims of these two crashes. There are going to be airlines right around the world demanding compensation for all the costs they've had to bear in grounding these planes. So Boeing's uh, financial woes, perhaps, are are just beginning. There have also been some awkward headlines in recent weeks. For example, back on June 28th, Bloomberg reported that Boeing and its suppliers had actually outsourced some of its 737 MAX software development and testing to temporary workers. In fact, some of these testers and developers made as little as $9 an hour. Uh, So that's not a good look on the company. Temporary workers, recent college grads were the ones who were tasked with developing what turned out to be then this flawed software for the 737 MAX, all apparently as a cost-cutting move. So certainly then when you look ahead to these lawsuits and the potential liability Boeing has here, it, it could be considerable. So joining us to talk a bit more about the significance of this announcement today and where all of this goes from here. Very pleased to welcome the program, Mark Muller. He's a uh, partner in the law firm uh, Kreinler and Kreinler LLP in New York, focusing on aviation litigation. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program.
4: Uh, It's nice to be with you.
2: So what do you make of this uh, announcement today? I mean, it was it was obvious, I suppose, that Boeing was going to be paying out a significant sum of money. But what does this represent to you?
4: well it, it it really doesn't come as a surprise it is quite customary now in international and domestic aviation crash cases for a manufacturer or an airline to make advance payments uh, to families to tide them over the rough spots that follow in the wake of this kind of a tragedy the uh, uh, payments are frequently in the twenty-five thousand per family range or fifty thousand per family uh, range. As I've as I've learned, the hundred million dollars covers. It's really a set aside, and is intended to cover families of the Lion Air crash as well as the Ethiopia crash. I also have been made to understand that it is going to be paid out over an extended period of time. What is unclear to me at this moment, because I haven't really seen the details. This is a, a, a very uh, recent announcement, uh, probably just a matter of hours old. Mm-hmm. Uh, is whether or not uh, Boeing will e- use these payments uh, to offset any portion of its uh, liability to the passengers when the final sum is determined. In other words, it may be an advance. Rather than an ex kind of payment.
2: Well, there there's certainly the lawsuits that are going to come, and and it, it would seem as though that this isn't going to mitigate that. This isn't going to make any of that go away. That there are probably some much bigger payouts for Boeing down the road. Is that is that a reasonable well, there, assumption? No,
4: No, there's no question about that. The the ultimate compensation payments that Boeing is going to have to make are going to be very, very substantial. What I'm saying is that if they, for example, advance $50,000 to a family... Is that, is that $50,000 going to be credited right. against their ultimate liability? If, they, if the liability in a given case is, is a million, just to take a number, is the family going to receive another nine fifty or is it going to get a million? Uh, so, so the way this is going to work out is unclear. It also uh, appears to be the case that the $100 million will be spread out over time. Uh, not necessarily paid in a lump sum. So uh, it also is unclear whether it's all going to the families or going to institutions that support the families, educational institutions, and things that might assist the community in which a passenger uh, lived. But it's a it's a it's a positive step. It's not a surprise. Uh, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's a very good way for Boeing to demonstrate that it is beginning to address the uh, extraordinary quantum of losses that these people have suffered.
2: So, for the families, and, and maybe there would be a dilemma in, in accepting this money, but this doesn't negate any claim that they have against the company, and, and I guess they would be made aware of that.
4: Well, that's right. We would. We we customarily instruct our clients uh... that uh... the money is simply received without any uh... release of of any portion of uh... their claim and uh... the uh, boeing would, will accept that that's uh... That, that that's the least of it the, uh... clients uh... no client would release a claim against boeing no passenger would rec- would release a claim against boeing for the minimum amount that is being advanced at this point yeah.
2: Well, in terms of where things stand on that front, I mean, Boeing's in this situation where, you know, they're trying to fix these problems with these planes, trying to get these planes back in the air. Obviously, at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're certainly cognizant of uh, the losses that are mounting for for airlines uh, in terms of their own losses, in terms then of acknowledging who's responsible for all of this. Uh, What's your sense of where, where Boeing's at right now in dealing with all of this?
4: Well it's a it's a short question that would that commands a long answer, but yeah. I'll try to keep it short. There are two there are two bodies of claims here. One obviously are the passenger claims for loss compensation and potentially for punitive damages against the manufacturer of Boeing. And then the the commercial losses that the airlines uh, have suffered by virtue of having the planes on the ground. Uh, and, and and losing revenue, the commercial claims will be strongly affected by the way the purchase contracts were written. When you buy an airplane, one of the one of the most critical terms that is negotiated are the warranty claims. There are when you buy a product, there are express and implied warranties that travel with the product express warranty is something that's written and implied warranty is 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 the expectation of the consumer that he's going to get what he pays for and that it's not an unsafe product express and implied warranties are specifically addressed in most air, aviation virtually all I would suspect aviation uh, aircraft uh, product agreements so depending upon how those Contract terms were negotiated. The, uh, the the nature of the claim that is preserved or can be advanced then can be examined. Uh, and 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 I would I would probably when I see more of this take the position in some cases that even if there is an express or implied warranty waiver in uh, a contract. That, if a contract was induced through fraud if if Boeing had information that the consumer that the customer sh- uh, would have uh, wanted to know about and relied upon in deciding not to take this airplane, the fraud may vitiate a waiver of express or implied warranties
2: yeah, interesting uh, has Boeing handled this in, in, in a I don't know if responsible is the right word, but in terms of how they've addressed these these issues as they've come up, whether they're being open and transparent about all of this, how do you think they've handled it so far? Uh,
4: well, I, I think they've done a pretty good job. I, I, I think, uh, aside from the fact that initially there were denials, there's nothing wrong with the airplane, the MCAS work, etc., I think it is now clear that Boeing recognizes, as it has to, that the 737 MAX has a serious problem, both technical and in terms of the way the plane was marketed. Uh, The simple fact that even if the MCAS on the 737 MAX worked the way it was intended, they never properly uh, instructed the pilots as to what they might expect and did everything they could before the ethiopia crash to avoid uh... creating an obligation to retrain the pilots on the mcas systems, and so you've got those two aspects you have the technical the way it functions and you have the instruction uh, the, the failure to instruct pilots boeing i think has come to recognize quite quickly that it cannot avoid ultimately uh... accepting liability for this so when they came into court last week and said, we're prepared to start negotiating settlements, that too came as no surprise. But the plaintiffs, our firm and the other firms that are involved in, in, in this litigation, will press forward with the liability aspects of the case. When the, 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 the clients that we represent demand two things, accountability and compensation. And to uh, compensation includes uh, compensatory damages, the immediate loss to families, uh, both economic and uh, the societal losses uh, that a family suffers, the loss of mutual benefits inherent in family relationships. You know, what is a good mother, what is a good father, what is a good sister, good brother, good grandparent worth? In, in in the in the crass ter- in crass terms, and uh, uh, you know those the, then you have punitive damages potential. Now, there's a whole body of law uh, which is terribly unclear right now as to whether punitive damages are recoverable as a matter of fact, and and there's even some issue as to whether it's recoverable as a matter of law. We think it is. Yeah. So in order to in order to uh, make sure that this doesn't happen again, punitive damage is a sort, and it shouldn't have happened in the first place.
2: Right. Well, the story's a long way from over. We'll leave it there for now. More at uh, com. That's K-R-E-I-N-D-L-E-R. Uh, Mark, appreciate the insight. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
4: Okay, thank you very much.
2: That's uh, Mark Muller, partner in the law firm Kreinler and Kreinler LLP in New York, an aviation litigation expert. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
1: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge,
0: starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.